and even following along with the Miller family, I want to invite you to grab your message outline, and uh, it's in your worship guide there. Maybe you have your Bible or your iPhone. If you need a worship guide, raise up your hand. We'll get one to you as quickly as we can. We're going to be talking about Christmas being complicated, and this is the last part of the message series that we've been in. But on this part, we're going to be talking about um, a, a, a piece that comes after Christmas, after Christmas. So I want to real quickly think about your home after Christmas. What's your home look like right now? Uh, for me, um, I haven't even begun to start undecorating my home. I bet some of you have, though, right? Raise your hand if you've already started the undecorating process. Uh, very few of us, all right. That means for most of us that we've got a Christmas tree up, but there might not be any presents underneath it anymore. It might look pretty barren. And we know in front of us, we, we've still got a bunch of decorations to take down. And some folks even talk about this period of the season, right here after Christmas, being kind of like a post-Christmas blues season or a post-Christmas blahs season because there was so much anticipation, anticipation and so much that built up into Christmas that now here we are after Christmas and it feels a little bit different. You know, very few sermons at Christmas time are ever preached about what happened after Jesus was born. Very few focus in on the complications that Mary and Joseph had after Christmas. If you think about it, a lot of sermons are preached about the difficulties and the complications that Mary and Joseph had to incur and, and that would occur leading up to the birth of Jesus. So today I want to focus in on, on with you what it's like to have the complications after Christmas. And here's my hope today. As we read some of these scriptures, as I share with you some, some truths that I think we can pull straight from God's word, I think you and I, two things. We can see how even in the midst of our complications of life, of family, of job, whatever it might be, in the midst of our complications, uh, God meets us. God works in those complications. And secondly, we can get a message for 2016 kind of eyes up court, start looking up and thinking about what is to come in the year that is ahead of us. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read some of the story that happened after Jesus was born. So in Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, Matthew chapter 2, 13, the Bible says, when they, and that's the Magi, when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Now, I'm going to be inviting you to circle and underline some things today, and so you're welcome to do that however you want to, but one of the first things I'd invite you to underline was those last three words right there, in a dream. What's interesting about Joseph is that Joseph often hears from God in a, in a messenger in dreams. You're going to hear it multiple times today in today's message. But an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. You might want to underline these next, six, uh, next seven words. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now we're going to come back to that in a little while, but notice that. Out of Egypt, that's the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, Joseph is kind of the focus of today's message. And the interesting thing about Joseph is you really don't ever really hear from Joseph very much. I mean, in the Bible, have you ever noticed that Joseph doesn't get a singular word? Not a word is recorded that Joseph ever said. And so because of that, 
Joseph kind of gets pushed to the background sometimes when the truth of the matter is, in the biblical text, and especially in Matthew, Joseph is a central figure. Now, you already discovered he hears from God in a dream. What does he hear? He hears a message, and it's basically this. Um, the, the angel says, get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. And so what does he do? Interestingly enough, for Joseph, he doesn't waste time. He begins packing right at that moment, and he begins to obey the angel who spoke to him in the dream. As a matter of fact, you get that first point. Fill in that first blank for me, if you will. Joseph practiced immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. I have a map for you. I'm going to throw this map up here real quickly because I want you to get a picture of where Joseph was headed from the message from the angel. Now, it, it might not, you might not be able to see this from far, far away, but way up, that very top point is the, is the city of Nazareth. That's where their journey began originally, right? And we know they came from Nazareth down into Bethlehem, which is about five miles south of Jerusalem. And it's in Bethlehem that he gets a dream that he's got to go now to Egypt. Now, grasp that for a minute, okay? They don't have cell phones back in that day. They can't FaceTime, all right? He's not even able to tell the family that he's received a dream. What does Joseph do? Notice how far he's got to travel to go down to Egypt. It's much longer than the original journey that was just down to Bethlehem. And so this message is no small message. As a matter of fact, I would say this actually is a big, big complication. Why, Stephen? Well, think about it. He got to Bethlehem because it was himself, his wife, pregnant with a child, packed a donkey down, right, as much as they could journey, expecting to go back to Nazareth, right? And now they've got to go to a foreign country. So think about what they have not packed with them. Think about how much they don't have with them. Not only do they not have clothes enough for the next leg of the journey and provision for the food, you know, for the next part of the journey, but they wouldn't have the simple stuff that you and I would normally think about. What are we going to need when we get down there and how long are we going to be there? They wouldn't have a house. They wouldn't have furnishings for a house. They wouldn't have all the necessities that they would normally need on a longer trip like that than just a few days. And by the way, you remember about Joseph, right? Joseph was a carpenter. What about that whole carpenter thing back in Nazareth? Was he not going to show back up to work? And was he not going to be able to tell the family, hey, we're going to be down in Egypt for a little while? Do you realize, has, have you ever grasped how complicated this message is to Joseph? That he's not even going to go back and tell his family where they are? That he's not even going to be able to take stuff with him on the journey? That he's not even going to be able to uh, know the job security that he might have in a foreign country? This is incredibly complicated. But I love what Joseph does. Joseph, the Bible says, I like it. It says, uh, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night. Grasp that for a minute, guys. I've been a Christ follower for a long time. I want to be an obedient, wonderfully obedient son. And I read this text and I wrestle with it. Because there's a part of me that goes, are you for real? He got a dream, and it says in the middle of the night, he packed and he left that night, during the night. Now, if you're anything like me before, God's spoken to you before, and you didn't obey right away. Are you there with me, right? 
Shake your head if God's spoken to you. You felt the still small voice of God and you didn't obey, right? What do we do in those moments? Oftentimes we do the same thing. We do several different things. I mean, we, we might start to debate with God. You know, God, are you sure? Isn't there some other way? Or maybe we would look for plan B, right? I mean, I've done that one before. Okay, God, there's got to be another way. Please give me a plan B. I'm going to wait right here because I didn't like plan A, right? Or how about this one? Have you ever done this one before? God spoke to you. And in, you were so afraid to do what God spoke to you, instead of obeying immediately, you did the biblical thing. You held on to that truth, and you went and met with other people to go get counsel. Are you sure? Do you think this? I think God told me to do this. Now, listen, I'm not saying counsel is not a good thing at all. But what I am saying is there's a lot of ways that we can sometimes get around, try to get around immediate obedience. And one of the things I love about Joseph is this guy is immediately obedient to God. Starts packing that night. It's almost like, and this amazes me, no questions asked. No questions about the job. No questions about the provision, God. No questions about the furnishings. No questions about the travel. He just obeys God. And it makes me just, it makes me hold on to the Bible and say, man, God, you must have really known what you were doing when you picked Joseph. Because this guy doesn't get a lot of press time. But the Bible says, He was a righteous man who followed the law, and then it gives us examples repeatedly that he was immediately obedient. That is who Joseph is. Now, here's a second point to that whole thing. Uh, uh, Write this one, if you will. God does provide for them, okay? God provided for them. And, of course, Joseph was trusting that provision, right? But that's a very important thing. Not only is Joseph, can we learn from the post-Christmas message that's very complicated, that Joseph is immediately obedient, but we can also learn that when he is obedient, God provides for them. So God doesn't just say, hey, head on down to a foreign country in Egypt and hope it goes well for you. I'll check in on you in a couple of years. That's not, God doesn't do that kind of thing, right? God looks out for them. Look, I'm going to go back in Scripture for a minute. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. And the Bible says this. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. You might want to underline those three words. They were overjoyed. Can I just tell you, I think a lot of people miss that little message. They had traveled so far, and the Bible, the singular adjective that it gets about the Magi who had traveled to see the Christ was when they finally found the baby, what did they get back in return for their journey, for their gifts? The Bible tells us joy, abundant joy is what the Magi got. And then it says this, On coming to the house, they saw the child. By the way, you might want to underline those words, house. It's not the cave. It's not the the stable. It's a house. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, there's a lot of mystery about these magi. And there's a lot of kind of uh, little Bible trivia that people ask about this all the time. We're never told there were three magi. We just know there were three gifts, right? Maybe if, if you never caught on to that one, you'll get tricked up, you know, tripped up on that one on your little Bible trivia. We just know there was magi. We know they traveled a long way. As a matter of fact, a lot of folks, 
have up for debate. When did they really arrive? Some folks think that they arrived early, maybe even on the night of Jesus' birth. Others think they arrived a little bit later and some a lot later because of little things like they arrived at a house instead of, you know, the stable or the manger. But what's interesting, notice this. What's interesting is what they give. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, a lot, of, a lot can be made out. We can make a lot of imagery and, and um, assume a lot about these gifts. You've probably heard before. Gold was kind of representative of, of riches and that which a king would have. Frankincense, more of the worship. They used frankincense in worship. Uh, the deity of God. Myrrh, the representation uh, oftentimes used to, uh, to be there when someone died to, to cover over the scent of death. Uh, myrrh was a beautiful fragrance. But what's interesting to me is I held this in my arms this week and I thought about post-Christmas complications, Joseph heading down to Egypt. It finally made sense for me. How else in the world can Joseph go to a foreign country, to a foreign land down there and stay years waiting for Jesus to be able to come back to Israel except that God had made provision through the Magi? Now, when did they arrive? I'm not really sure. I don't know that. But what I do know is what happened with Joseph's dream. And I do know what happened with with Herod that we're about to read, that Herod got so mad mad because the Magi outwitted him. And then in the midst of that, I see this provision that God provided. You've probably heard it said before that wherever God calls, God provides. And it's a truism. It's not just something that preachers preach. It really is a truism. If God calls you to somewhere... He will provide to you in that place. And that's exactly what God did for Joseph, for Mary, and for Jesus. He provided. Now, why is that important? Not only did he provide the resources to be able to make the travel, but he provided the rescue to keep Jesus alive. Look at this next passage, uh, Matthew chapter 2. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah. I want to circle that word. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel, circle that word. Rachel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. Because they are no more. Yeah, complicated? This is interesting because this is the part of the Christmas story that we leave out, right? We don't want to have this picture of um, Joseph and Mary running off to a foreign country trying to rescue and save the baby Jesus because he's being hunted down. We don't have that in our manger scenes, right? And what's also interesting is we don't have dead babies everywhere in our manger scene, but it's part of the biblical story. So in order to understand the complications that surround it, you got to know a little bit about Herod. Who is this guy that he's going to order all the babies, uh, the little baby boys killed who are two years and under? And what is his deal? Now, what you need to know about Herod is Herod was, he was manic about power. Herod was vicious and mean. Caesar Augustus was quoted as, by a historian as saying these words, it would be better to be King Herod's pig than his son. It would be better to be King Herod's pig than his son. Why? Because he had killed most of his sons. He was hungry for power, and he was fearful that somebody would take his power away. 
So his family wasn't protected like even some livestock would be. So for example, two of his sons, he had them strangled right in front of him because he was afraid they were seeking his throne. His, one of his wives, he had ten wives. One of his wives, interestingly enough, his favorite wife, um, he had killed. He thought she had cheated on him. She did not, but he thought she did, and so he killed his favorite wife. An 18-year-old brother-in-law, eight, eight, her, her, one of his wife's uh, brothers, he had him killed because people in, in Israel started to say that he was liked more than Herod. He killed his grandfather. He killed another 80-year-old uncle and another uncle. He killed his mother-in-law, which would make sense, right? If you're killing everybody else, why not go and kill your mother-in-law too, right? Um, so what's a few Jewish babies? If you've killed all those people, why not kill a few more, right? Now, here's what you need to know. Jeremiah, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jeremiah had said that there would be weeping in Ramah and from Rachel. Let me throw a map up here on the, on the board again uh, and, and real quickly understand. I hope you can see this. That, that center word there in red is, is Ramah. It's the city of Ramah. Ramah was five miles north of Jerusalem where King Herod was. And I've already told you Bethlehem was where? Five miles south of Jerusalem. You can see it right there on the map. It's as if Herod took a pen or took a, a pencil and just kind of circled five miles north, five miles east, five miles west, five miles south, circled, Beth, circled Jerusalem, and then said, every baby boy in this area should be slaughtered. You get a pick. Oh, by, by the way, why did I say Bethlehem? Bethlehem is where Rachel was buried. You see, so it says the prophet Jeremiah said, Ramah, from Ramah down to Rachel, where Rachel was buried in Bethlehem, there would be weeping because these babies would be killed. Now, what's interesting about this is God is not only providing the resources, but he's providing the rescue to keep Jesus alive when such a terrible person is going to hunt after him. Fill in that last point, that third point there. God's plan points to deliverance. So this post-Christmas complicated journey is pointing to deliverance. Now, in what way, Stephen? Well, certainly so that Jesus would stay alive because Herod was trying to kill all the baby boys just to kill this so-called new king of the Jews. But the truth of the matter is, now what God is going to do is he's going to fulfill another prophecy that had said that that the Messiah would, be, would come out of Egypt. And so way back in the, in the book of Hosea, we read it in our very first scripture, Hosea had said these words, out of Egypt I called my son. And so God is going to tell Joseph to go down into Egypt, and it's in that land that then he's going to live. In the very first few years of Jesus' life, he's going to live in a foreign land, the land of Egypt, until that time is that he would come back to Israel. Now get this picture, guys. Whenever you hear the word Egypt, what should be your first thought, right? Moses, right? The children of Israel. Pharaoh, their rescue from Egypt. What is God doing here? 1,500 years before Jesus and Mary and Joseph are finally allowed to come back up out of Egypt from being delivered away from Herod, 1,500 years before that, God had called his people out of Egypt. He had rescued them, delivered them out of Egypt into the promised land of Israel. So read this with me real quickly. It says in verse, um, in, in verse 19, chapter 2. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream, there it is again, 
in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And the angel said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up. There's that immediate obedience again. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. So having been warned in a dream, again, another dream, having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said to the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. I want you to get this picture for a minute. Egypt was no longer ruled by pharaohs, okay? In this time period when Jesus was born, Egypt was now ruled by Rome. See, Rome was conquering the world. And Rome was in charge of Egypt. They had conquered Egypt by this point. And what's also interesting is Herod had no power in Egypt. He had no power there. And so when Joseph takes the child and Mary down into Egypt, what you would have found in Egypt is a bunch of people trying to escape this terrible leader, Herod. There would have been thousands of Jews who had gone to live in Egypt as refugees. Thousands of Jews had had went down there to escape Herod. And here's what you also need to know. Down in Egypt would have been settlements, Jewish settlements. So when Joseph and Mary finally get down to Egypt, they come into a place that is a foreign land, yes, but they come into a place where they could find a Jewish settlement. There would probably have been a sanctuary, I mean, a, a, a synagogue there, some form of a temple there in that place. And what's interesting, grasp this for a minute, is that the very foreign land of Egypt that had enslaved the people of God 1,500 years earlier now becomes the holding place, the, the sanctuary that provides security for the Son of God, who's just a a small baby growing into a boy. Have you ever realized how God brought that redemption full circle, not just for the Israelites out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, but now for the Savior from Egypt coming back to Israel? God is providing deliverance, and His plan points towards deliverance, but what I would also add, and you might want to write in the margin, is that God's plan always points to deliverance. See, that's the kind of God we serve. God's plan is always pointing towards deliverance. Now, I know there's a lot of folks who get kind of these mixed up images about God, and they think of God as some kind of mean ogre, or some people think that God just kind of set the world in motion like a clockmaker, and then he just left it alone, and he's some kind of distant God. But what I want you to understand, the biblical image of who God really is, is he is a delivering God. He rescues over and over again. And I wonder, as you came here to church this morning, if you've got something that might need rescuing. Do you have something in your life, a relationship? Do you have something in your world that needs deliverance? It might have been a a thought pattern or a habit. It might have been an addiction. But here's what you need to know. God's path, God's plan is always towards deliverance. And so Joseph gets up and what does he do? He immediately obeys Again, and he takes the child to Nazareth. Now, you know what Nazareth is, right? 
Nazareth, the Bible would later say that somebody would say, what good can come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is just a small little town. If you go to Nazareth today, it's a booming kind of bustling place because, of course, Jesus was raised in Nazareth and it's just a tourist stop now. But if you went to Nazareth back then, Nazareth was out of the way. It was out of the spotlight. It was out of the politics. It was out of the prosperity. In God's great plan, what does God do? He delivers the world through his son by bringing him back to Israel and puts him in a little, no-nothing, small, little, dinky, think South Georgia town, okay? He puts him in a little town like that, and it's in that place where Jesus is away from politics, away from prosperity, that Jesus begins to grow up. And the Bible would say of him that he would grow up in wisdom and in favor with God. Hey, just real quickly, what can we pull away from this kind of as a post-Christmas message about the complications of life? Maybe even about 2016 in front of us. Real quickly, write all three of these points down. Number one, none of us, not a one of us, are exempt from trouble. Jesus said, in this world, you are going to have tribulation. You are going to have troubles, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So one of the first things we need to grab is... You know, kind of like this guy in this red chair said earlier today, you can't have family and not have complications. There's going to be problems. There's going to be troubles we're going to go through, right? Listen, we as a church, we're going to have troubles. We're going to have complications. This is life. Every, in, into every life, some rain must pour, right? And so none of us are going to be exempt from troubles. Secondly, good news. Here's the good news. The safest place to be is wherever God is leading you to be in the very center of God's will. And we get that message from from Joseph and Mary and Jesus. The safest place to be is following God's plan, even if it's off to a foreign place, even if it's to an uncomfortable place, even if it's to a place you haven't prepared for. The safest place to be is wherever God is leading you. You don't have to be afraid of where God is leading you. So when you pray and you say, God, where are you leading me? And then God maybe says and reveals something that wherever he's calling you to, you don't have to go, oh, now what, God? Are you sure? You can know that if God reveals to you his calling, that he's calling you to a certain place, it's the safest place for you to be because he's going to look after you. He's going to provide for you in that place. And then number three, even in the complications, even in the difficulties, God is in charge. In your margin, I didn't put this up on the screen or anything. In your margin, you might want to just write that word there, sovereign. It means he's king, okay? Sovereign. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N. Sovereign. Our God is a sovereign God. It means he is the king. Now, what did that mean for Mary and Joseph and for Jesus? Well, this whole deal, this whole Christmas, first Christmas thing, (laughs) their life was not going to be anything like they planned it. I mean, they'd planned a neat marriage, you know. They'd gotten engaged. Who knows all the plans that Mary had. Everything was changed for them. It wasn't going to be anything like they had planned. But what do we also know about this young couple? We know that God gave them his favor. He gave them provision. Remember that first message I preached in this series about four weeks ago? I talked to you about the the favor of God over Mary's life and how she had found favor. We read scriptures about how she had walked uprightly. Noah had walked uprightly. Moses had walked uprightly. And every one of them had found favor with God. 
You know, I, I, was, I was laying in my bed last night thinking about this message I was going to preach to you this morning, talking with God about who this guy Joseph was. And you know what I pull away from Joseph? I pull away the, kind of the man that I want to be. I mean, I want to have the kind of faith that Joseph had. And I want to have the kind of obedience that Joseph had. And I want to have the kind of relationship with God where if God wants to send me an angel in a dream, and that might seem a little scary to me, that'd be quite all right. How cool would that be? See, the Bible talks about Mary having favor. But the Bible also says Moses was a man of righteousness. We know the favor of God was over Moses' life as well. So just a couple of takeaways coming out of this. Every one of us is going to have troubles. The safest place to be is right in the very center of God's will. Make sure you're walking in the very center of God's will. You don't want to live a day outside of God's will. And then thirdly, in every complication, in every disappointment, in every struggle, in every problem you ever have, God is still king. He's still in charge. Here's just a couple of thoughts I would encourage you to take into 2016. And the first one is this. You might want to write these in the margin of your notes, maybe even think about them after this service today. The first one is this. Guys, our prayer lives are more important than we think they are. I'm going to say that again. You might want to write that in your notes somewhere. My prayer life is more important than I think it is. You know, I'm so glad Joseph was linked up with his father. You know what I mean? I think God knew what he was doing because Joseph was a man who was in touch with the kingdom of God. So in touch that when God said move, he moved. When God said zig, he zigged. He didn't zag. Our prayer lives are more important than we think they are. And I wonder for you in 2016 what it would look like for you to really... <laughs> did, you see the, did you see the movie War Room? Did you see that movie? If you haven't seen that movie, hey, here's a good idea for you. Why don't you support Christian movies in America and go to Walmart and buy it? Why don't you go buy it this week if you don't have it and sit down and watch War Room? And it will remind you of the power of prayer and how important it is that we be a people of prayer. This is, this is very important for me, I know, as I move into 2016. Second thought. I said three things, kind of a takeaways here. Out of this, every one of us is going to have trouble. And God is with us in the middle of it, and He calls us to walk in the perfect, the, the perfect will that He has for us, and that God is king no matter what happens. Obedience is important. As a matter of fact, I want to say it differently. Partial obedience is disobedience. I wish I had time to talk to you about that at length and where we find that over and over again because the people in, of the Old Testament, they were partially obedient a lot. And they were disobedient at the core. I want to learn what it means to be a good son of my father. And when he speaks, see in my house we have, we have this little thing. <laughs> my kids don't like it. But we have this little thing. We call it the three rules of obedience, Right? Mom, if you got a little mom, if you got a little child in your home, moms and dads, you might want to write the three rules of obedience down because they're true. I learned these a long time ago, and I've tried to teach them to my kids. And my hope is that my kids, long after they're outside of my house, they'll know that the three rules of obedience apply not just in our home, but they apply to my spiritual relationship with God. And here's the three rules of obedience: 
do it right then. Do it when you've been told to do it. Do it immediately. Immediately, that's obedience. Not later on, that's disobedience. Do it immediately. Second rule of obedience, do it fully. Don't do it halfway. If you do it halfway, you weren't obedient at all. You just did it halfway. And then thirdly, do it with a good attitude, right? In our rule, we have three rules of obedience. Do it then, do it now, do it immediately, do it fully, don't do it halfway, and do it with a good attitude, or you'll just be doing it in spite of it. You won't really have been had an obedient, teachable heart. Then I'll tell you what, what would it look like for you in 2016, every time God spoke to you, you did it then, and you did it fully, and you did it with a good attitude because you knew that God's will was a good and prospering will for you. What would that look like for you? You see, for me, I just know that I've got more and more and better and better and, and bigger and bigger needs in my life to be fully obedient to Him. To when He speaks, if I'm walking across a street and there's a lady standing right there and He says, hey, take a moment, stop and talk to her right now. I don't have to know the words. I don't have to know the things. I don't have to know what's going on in her life. I don't have to argue with Him. I don't have to debate. I can just stop and take that step and he'll meet me there and he'll give me those words what would it look like for you to grow deeper in your prayer life in 2016 what would it look like for you to make new strides in your obedience to God in your readiness whatever he said and then the thirdly the third thing what would it look like for you to hear a word from God every day I think about how Joseph heard a word from God and he obeyed in that moment. And recently I was sitting at Chick-fil-A with one of my dear friends and, and he confessed to me. He said, you know what, I'm not really spending time with God like I, I used to. He said, I, I get up and I just kind of run on about my day. I got a lot, of, a lot of responsibilities for my work and for the family. And I looked at him and I kind of told him about what was going on in my life and how, I'd, how I had needed my time with God. And, and he looked at me and he said some words and his, his head just kind of fell. And I don't, I don't believe there was shame there. I don't believe there was condemnation there. But his head just fell at the table. And he shook his head. And he looked back up at me as a seasoned believer. And he said some words that really rung in my ears from my own life. He looked at me and he said, When will I learn that the manna spoils the next day? If you know that story from the story of Egypt, you know how God gave provision for that day. He said, don't, don't worry about tomorrow. Trust me tomorrow for tomorrow. Today is today. Take it for today. And what my dear friend was saying was, the word God gave me three days ago is not for today. It was for three days ago. I need to hear from God every day. Every day. I need to pick up God's word, spend some time centering myself in prayer, five minutes alone in a chair saying, God, what would you have for me today? Today. Because the manna only is good for today. It'll spoil for tomorrow. Dwayne, what would it look like for you every day of 2016 to get a rhema word from God for Dwayne and for Cindy? See, I believe God wants every one of us as his children to be seeking after those kind of personal words from him every day. Because who is he? He's a good father. He's Abba Father, right? And he wants to talk to us every day. Prayer, obedience, God's word pouring into our life every day. Man, it's the way that I think that any one of us will find our way. Living and walking in the very center of God's will. I want to pray for you as we get ready to move into 2016. 
I want to pray for you that God's going to do something good in your life. He's going to do something good in your family. He's going to do something good in our church. Let's stay plugged in like Joseph was. Amen? Hey, pray with me if you will. God, as we sit here looking out into the future across the next year, we are reminded that though we are small, you are big and that you're already there. You are already there, God. And we thank you that you know everything that's going to come, come our way. And you know the troubles that we will have. But you also know how you're going to lead us through those troubles. And you know how you're going to guide us all along the way. Lord, give us faith. And give us obedience. And help us to be a people of prayer every day in our lives. Lord, help us to really seize in upon the power of prayer in our lives. And never undercut it. Never underestimate it. Lord, make us, help us to be, Holy Spirit, a people of prayer. Lord, I pray for moms and dads and grandmas and granddads that you'd help us be praying for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, God. And help us to be praying for our church. Lord, help us to be a people of prayer in everything we do. And Lord, I pray that you'd make us a people of your word. Lord, I believe you want to speak your word into our lives every day. You're always talking. The real question is, are we listening And Lord, I pray you'd bless our spiritual ears. Help us to hear and hear well. And help us to have the the strength and the courage and the faith to be obedient like Joseph was. So that if you say move, we move. We move right then. We move fully. And we move with a good attitude, trusting that you're our Heavenly Father. And Father, we believe, I believe today for every one of us in this place. Jeremiah 29 11, that you have a plan for us, a future and a hope. Plans not to harm us, but plans to prosper us. Lord, may your will be accomplished in our life. May your kingdom come in our church, in our family, and in our world. We believe. We believe. Grow us. Strengthen us. And may we be more and more righteous, walking in your favor every day. This is our prayer, God. This is our prayer. Thank you, O God. Thank you for all that you have in front of us for this next year. And Lord, in the next few minutes as we give to your kingdom gain, remind us that you've called us to be imitators of you, Jesus. The Bible says you so love the world that you gave and you've called us to be givers. So Lord, help us to give with full and whole hearts. And Lord, I just pray that we would give out of the overflow of all that you've done for us. We love you, Jesus. Expand your kingdom through our gifts, we pray. In the strong and mighty name of Jesus, amen.